This talk was recorded at the 2019 Actuarial Society of South Africa Convention at the Sandton Convention Centre. For more information on the Actuarial Society, visit actuarialsociety.org.za. Good morning. I think everyone's settling in. Uh, my name is Karika Nell. I'm a director at Deloitte and the actuarial team there, and I have the privilege today of chairing this session. Um, we have two sets of presentations. I'll introduce one at a time, um, and then we'll, we'll have some opportunity to question Michael in between, but, but do, there will be time afterwards as well for, for a Q&A session. So Michael is an actuary and a quant, and is a a co-founder of the old mutual ALM and balance sheet management unit. Subsequently, he has spent some time traveling with his wife and now does consulting under the company Workworth. Um, it's also today's first child's first birthday. Did I get that right? So thanks for sharing, sharing today with us. Um, Michael, over to you. Thank you. Should insurers take investment risk? This is a controversial question as to whether it's valuable for the shareholder. Questions arise such as, what if markets go down? What about capital requirements? And can't the shareholder do this by themselves? And the various views of this can be seen in the industry with the diverse applications that we have. Some insurers are heavily invested in cash, some hold equity positions, and some in the middle with structured positions. And because of this limited consensus, it's an interesting question. And I'm going to unpack how we can have a look at this. I'm going to start by having a look at why investment risk is different in insurers. Are insurers positioned differently in such a way that they have an advantage that ordinary investors don't? And then I'm going to have a look at a business case to see whether it makes sense practically. So I'm going to look at the capital requirements, profit and loss volatility, and the resilience. We all know that one of the key criticisms of SAM was that it has high capital requirements for equity risk, which discourages insurers from taking on equity risk. So we're going to start by um, having a look at a conceptual long-term product. And in this product, we receive a premium, and we pay a claim at a later stage. And because we've got good underwriting, we know when those two cash flows are going to happen. And we invest the proceeds from the premium over the period. And typically, we would invest it in a matched bond. We would hold very little market risk capital, and we'd make all our profit with underwriting margins and admin fees. And our whole business would be about selling uh, more product to make more of these margins. And the question we're going to ask is, well, can we do better by taking on investment risk instead of investing in a bond? And the answer to this is going to depend on the term. And that is because long-term returns are more valuable. So here I've got a plot of historical JSE returns. You'll see the vertical black lines are actually all lots of little dots of historical annualized returns over the period. And we can see that early on in the sort of one to five year period, returns are very volatile all over the place. And that as time progresses over 10 year periods, returns become much more stable, predictable, and also positive, even the lower ones. And this ties in with our intuition that uh, long-term returns are valuable. 
One of the key criticisms of such an analysis is that it uses overlapping data. And if we do this with non-overlapping data, we have a much more sparse data set, but we still see a similar result. So coming back to the product, instead of being exposed to a single investment period, intuitively, we'd want to be exposed to a number of investment periods. So we can keep selling products, so we keep getting premiums, and we pay claims at a later stage, and therefore we're exposed to investment returns over, over consequent periods, and we can smooth the return over that. So if we have a positive return, we hold it back. If we have a negative return, we carry that loss forward, and then over the period, we achieve a um, average return that is stable. Well, what's important to note is that we're really just carrying the return forward, so this is just being exposed to the long-term return. So our intuition about averaging over a number of periods or being exposed to long-term returns, and both of them are valuable, are actually linked. And if we come back to the returns, we can see that. So the 10-year return there is just the average of those one-year returns, those volatile ones that have been carried forward for 10 years. And what you'll also notice is that the graph decreases with something that looks like the square root of time. And this has mathematical roots in that the variance of the average return is less than the variance of any individual return. And that over a period, under normal distribution, that actually decreases with the square root of time. So we can then keep selling more products. Um, and what we see is that we have a netting off of cash flows in the middle. So we keep selling premiums and paying claims. And we invest early on, we have a netting off in the middle, and then we only have to pay the funds back significantly later. So if you include the averaging on top of this keep selling product, we can see that insurers can extend the term of their product quite far. And then this is valuable because long-term returns are more valuable. So conceptually, there's opportunity. There's the economics say that their long-term returns are more valuable, and insurers are uniquely positioned to be able to be exposed to those dynamics by selling long-term products or smoothing over periods. In one way, you could say that insurers have the ability to manage the nature of the liability to match attractive assets. But in practice, there are some challenges. We have capital requirements, which are quite high under SAM. Um, we need resilience, uh, which means we need to have a buffer. We need to be able to survive all the volatility of the one-year returns to be able to make it into the long, long um, term. And on top of that, we're going to have profit and loss volatility. And the question is, is there value after we've considered all that? And we're going to look at an example to try and answer that question. Instead of looking at a product fund, we're going to just look at our NAV or our equity capital, which is funds that we have for a very long period of time over, I mean, essentially arbitrarily long because it's as long as our book will be around. And the question we're going to ask is, should we invest that in cash or in equity? And to determine value, we're going to use a very well-established value model, a return on equity. Um, and what we have here in the blue block is the product returns. So these are your margins, your admin returns, your underwriting returns, and essentially everything that you would call life product returns. Underneath that, in the gray block, we have the investment returns. So in this case, this would be the cash returns on the, on the equity value of the company. And the sum of those two is going to give us the total return of the, of the life insurer um, divided by the equity on the x-axis, and therefore we can see the, the return on equity. 
And we're gonna have a look at what happens to this when we move from a cash portfolio into a equity or more risky portfolio. And so what we see on the left-hand side is that we'll have a higher expected return, essentially the equity risk premium, um, and our product returns remain the same, and therefore we're going to have a higher return on equity on those funds. But we need to adjust for risk. We need to make sure that our cost of capital remains the same, that the, the, the risk discount rate remains the same. And to do that, we need to hold additional capital or a buffer. And in the first instance, we're going to hold enough capital to manage our, keep our solvency ratio constant. And then on top of that, we'd hold additional capital for resilience so that we can run through the shocks of the one-year um, returns in the market. So let's say we'd hold 1.6 times our solvency capital. Now that additional capital will be invested in the markets, but it's not going to earn any product returns. So on the right-hand side, you see that there's additional capital earning only the market returns and that has a lower return on equity. So we have a balancing act around, you know, increased expected returns on the left-hand side, but to adjust for risk, we need to hold more capital, and therefore we dilute our returns on the right-hand side, and the balance of that is going to give us the return on equity. Similarly, in embedded value model, you'll see that the cost of required capital will reduce, but there'll be a larger base to apply your cost of required capital to. But it's not just return on equity that's interesting. We want to know how much more profits we're going to make and how much more actual equity we need to put into the company. So what I have here is a return on equity view of growth. So on the y-axis, we can see that's additional profits, so that's how much more profits we make. And on the x-axis, is that's how much more equity we need to put into the business. So at the current point, we're really at the zero, zero point there where, where, where the red dot is, um, making our current profits with our current equity. And if we had to scale up our book, let's say we just scaled everything up 15%, so sold 15% more of everything. Under the current economics, we need 15% more equity and we'd end up at, at the black dot. And so as we scale up our book up or down, we'd essentially move up along that 45 degree line. If we sold something that's more valuable, we'd be above the line and we'd have more return for less equity. And if we sold something that's less valuable, we'd have to put in more equity for, for less return. And so we're going to look what happens when we move from cash to equity. So here we have a diversified insurer. One is holding a, a, a buffer of a 1.6 times their solvency ratio for resilience. And we're going to move from a cash position to a 40% equity position. Um, so 60% cash, 40% equity, and we're assuming a 4% equity risk premium. And we look what happens to this insurer. We can see they make additional profits of 18%, but only need to put in 16% more capital. So one can say on an expected basis, this is more valuable than selling new products. This obviously is on an expected basis, and there is going to be volatility over time, but over time you'll expect that volatility to converge to the figure that you have there. And how big that volatility is, we're looking at a balanced fund. It's 40% equity, 60% uh, cash. So what I'm going to do now is just go through that same result in a number of different situations to see how it can vary and what parameters it's sensitive to. So we'll start with the same insurer, and this insurer is just investing either 20, 30, or 40% uh, in equity. 
And we can see that you know, there's additional re uh, returns as you invest more in equity and that we have a higher value gradient that essentially investing in equity for this insurer would increase the total value of the company on a risk-adjusted basis. If we look at a concentrated insurer, we get a very different picture. This insurer has to hold more equity capital, um, and because of that, they need a higher buffer to be resilient against the fluctuations, so they're holding a 1.7 times solvency ratio. So this insurer would have a lower return on equity if they invested in equity. Um, and actually investing in equity for this insurer would decrease the value of the company relative to rather selling products. This shows the value of diversification and the importance of diversification inside the insurer to make this decision. Similarly, we come back to the original insurer, but this insurer has very profitable products. So the relative return from the equity risk premium relative to the products is lower. And so, as your intuition would say, you'd rather be selling very profitable products than deploying your capital to take equity risk and earn the equity risk premium. So for this insurer, they would not want to invest in equity. What we've seen is that the amount of capital is key to the value argument here. Um, and we have a very high dilution because we're holding capital for a one-year view, but we're taking a long-term view. So if we look at that graphically, um, we can see here's the dilution around having to hold a lot of capital on the right-hand side, um, diluting our return on equity uh, to maintain our current risk profile. So what can we do about that? We're taking a long-term view and we've got a one-year capital requirement. We could buy protection against one-year capital requirements. But this is going to cost us some money. So to reduce the cost of that, we can sell some of the upside um, in, this, in the extreme cases. And that's a strategy called a collar. Uh, and it leads to a position called the bull spread. And if we have a look at what that does in our picture, we can see that in this example, we have an insurer, the, the original insurer, that is protected against a fall of less than 10%. So if the market drops more than 10%, we have protection. However, if the market runs more than 20%, we'll have to give away that upside return. And that has drastically reduced the capital requirements. Both these insurers now only need to hold 10% capital, diversified or not. You'll also see that the returns have come down a bit, but we have a significantly more efficient um, gradient here in terms of adding value to the company with a structured solution. So what happens in the crisis in 2008? Those have been the worst volatilities you've seen in the option market. We see that the cost of those options increases, so the returns decrease. But over time, we see that it's not completely um, a terrible idea. And similarly, if we have the same company making extremely profitable products, we can see that the advantages of moving to a risky portfolio become more marginal, but are still positive. So what we've seen is that depending on your situation and your asset strategy, there's a wide variety of results that you can get. And this may actually explain some of the divergence we see in the industry between you know, holding equity or holding completely cash. And in practice, there are a lot of other considerations that you'd have to factor. You'd have to factor in your liquidity requirements of your capital. There might be assets that you can't hedge. There might be strategic assets. And all these would then need to filter into a portfolio strategy, which we then have to see what the result of. And 
Ideally, you'd want to end up with a situation where you have a simple strategy with a well-understood long-term behavior that behaves in a particular area of this graph. So just coming to the checklist, we've had a look at, you know, is there value? We've looked at the ROE or an EV value model to determine that there may be value in some cases. Um, we've taken capital requirements into account. And we've also allowed for the fact that we need to survive to the long term, so we need a buffer and that we need to be resilient. In many cases, there is value on a risk-adjusted basis. Um, so the, the, the last question that we really want to ask is, what about profit and loss volatility? This is going to impact our, our IFRS account statements and you know, could we manage it away? In some cases, we could manage it away and in other cases, we can't. So I'm going to assume for, for this example that we can't manage the, the profit and loss volatility away. And I'm going to ask, well, why is it a problem? So the first reason I can think of is, well, it's going to have a cash flow impact and it can impact our dividend stability. But this we can include in our portfolio strategy. We can have enough liquidity and enough of a buffer to manage any cash flow impacts or dividend stability. So I would say that that has to go into the value argument as part of your portfolio construction. The next question is, well, what does it do to the value of the company? So if we look at an embedded value model, we see that the impact of market returns is actually diluted. Your net asset value is only a small portion of your embedded value. So let's say your net asset value is a third of your embedded value. Any market fluctuations will only have a third of an impact on your total asset value. So this shouldn't have a significant impact on, on the value or the volatility of the value of the company. So then maybe the answer lies in, in looking at the price earnings model, where we have the company value is equal to the earnings times the price earnings ratio. And if there's any impact on earnings, it's going to have a very big impact. In fact, the whole price earnings ratio is going to multiply that impact. At this point, it's, it's useful to notice that Price earnings ratios do not apply to investment returns. The value of an asset is, is the market value of that asset. It's not the value of the return of that asset multiplied by your company's price earnings ratio. And if you value an asset like that, you're going to misvalue a company. And the implication of this is that operational earnings and market are, are much more significant on a price earnings ratio than market earnings. And that market returns are not as significant for the volatility of the value of a company by a large factor, that factor being the price-earnings ratio. And that it's important that you know, price-earnings models and embedded value models value a company consistently for the, for the same information. And what would be very useful is that if everybody knew this and agreed. <laughs> so reporting and alignment is key to this. So you need to make sure that the information provided ensures that share valuation models can value the company consistently. The discounted cash flow, your return on equity, your price earnings model, um, and your embedded value model, that they all value the company in a similar way. And that the way in which results are reported is important for that. You also want to make sure your stakeholders are aligned, that they understand that we are taking a long-term view that there will be some earnings volatility, but that the way in which you report it is such that it shouldn't have a large impact on the company value. And the central actuarial functions are key to doing this. In this case, we're just doing it in net asset value, but if you did it in a product value, it would require quite some unpacking. 
So just to have a review of the various components, uh, the first one is we need to have a definition of equity and, and value for the company. In this case, we used uh, return on equity. We also need to understand the portfolio requirements. So what are our cash flow requirements? How much liquidity do we need? Um, what are the strategic considerations for the assets that we're already holding? We also then need to look at our capital risk and resilience. So how much buffer do we need to hold relative to the risk that we are taking? And then we need to make sure that reporting is aligned with our strategy. So we are aligned with our company valuation models and our stakeholders are aligned on what we're doing. We also need to look at the business context. So we've seen the level of diversification and product profitability can impact the strategy. And the combination of all of these is really going to give us our optimal portfolio strategy. So in summary, insurers are well positioned to take investment views and can design products and product management accordingly. In some way, they are levers to manage the liability to um, match attractive assets. And it can make economic sense for some insurers. It's likely feasible under the current constraints of SAM. And it does require an ALM strategy to manage and integrate the various components that I just showed in the previous slide. As a parting thought, insurers make their money off three key areas, risk underwriting, um, admin fees, and investment returns. And as we've seen in the previous talk, as we have more big data and growth in fintech, may we not see some pressure on the risk margins? And similarly, as we see advances in technology, we may see pressure on the admin fees. And the question is whether this makes investment returns relatively more attractive. Thank you. Thank you, Michael. Um, I'm going to give our opportunity for any pressing questions at this point, if there's any questions from the audience. See past the spotlight, just wave. Thank you, Michael. That was really very insightful. And as you went through the presentation, I sat there going through, through some of the, the scenarios or or suggestions for, for my clients, and it, and it really just um, landed in, in my view that, that it's very unique to, to the specific insurer, their risk appetite, um, their view on the volatility of earnings, so, so thank you, I, I enjoyed that. Um, I'm going to check one last time if there's questions now, otherwise please think about it and then we can, can give another, another opportunity to ask questions to Michael after the next presentation. Just going to see past the spotlight. Oh, there's one. Hi. Um, thanks for a very interesting talk, Mark. What changes are needed under FS 17 reports? Yeah, yeah, thank you, Colin. Um, <laughs> so... I think IFRS 17 is a, is a fairly complex topic around how much of the profit and loss volatility is actually just going to be showing in your IFRS statements. And I think that's going to then evolve as to how you engage with your stakeholders on what they need to expect in the reporting when they value your company. I don't think it's going to change much of the economics, but I do think it's likely to make sure much of the investment return is going to be more visible um, to 
stakeholders. Any other questions? Have you, have you considered any other asset classes than equity, credit assets, uh, fixed income assets, for example? Yes, definitely. I think this is just an example to use equity. Um, I'm talking about investment risk in its generality. So that includes credit, mes credit, you know, um, property, overseas equity or anything of the same. I think one would just need to factor that into your portfolio construction and obviously you'd have to look at the liquidity requirements in particular um, for other asset classes. Is your conclusion the same though that it did actually uh, add value for any of those asset classes? I think many of them can, uh, and as I said, it will depend quite heavily on the insurer itself. Um, in some insurers, there may be too much concentration in particular classes for there to be enough of a diversification benefit, um, and in other specific asset classes, it may be a lot harder to get structured portfolios that can manage the, the um, capital requirements. So it would be very um, insurer-specific. Time for another question before we hand over to the next presentation. Okay. Thank you, Michael, again. Um, our next presentation is with David Kirk and Marissa Petersher. So David is the Milliman SA practice leader, is an actuary, aspiring baker, podcast addict, and thinks about the future. I didn't know the baking part, I, I must admit. Um, Marissa is a consultant in Milliman, Africa, based in, in Cape Town. At work, she loses herself in complex calculation and code. In her free time, she enjoys a good glass of, glass of Chardonnay or Cabernet. I agree with that. Um, maintaining her garden or hugging her adopted bunny. So, David, Marissa, over to you. Thanks, Greco. I want to check whether I have a pointer. Do okay. <clears throat> so, if you think about the origins of insurance, it was about individuals or groups getting together to, to transfer risk or to share risk. There wasn't a formal insurance company in the way intermediating that. If you also look at the capital markets today, there's several orders of magnitude larger than the insurance sector. So arguably by that way of thinking, the idea of an insurance-linked security shouldn't be alternative risk transfer. That, that maybe should be the norm. So that was part of the process that, that we, we were thinking about when we looked at uh, pandemic catastrophe, catastrophe bonds. Uh, can I get the slides, please? I don't think the slides are even showing it. Catastrophe. <laughs> that may be my shortest joke ever. I will keep going in the meantime. Um, uh, so, what is a pandemic catastrophe bond? It is a capital market uh, instrument to transfer pandemic risk or mortality risk in general from one party to another. In some ways, it just gives uh, an insurer or a reinsurer the ability to borrow money and not repay it if a catastrophe happens. 
the, the demand for this, if anything, comes from, uh, well, I guess, the mortality catastrophe component within the SDR. So you have to hold capital against these, these risks. And the fact that reinsurers in general are pretty reluctant to actually take on this risk at all. Uh, you know, if you, you go to reinsure and ask for that specific risk, they'll, they'll maybe want you to go uh, a quota share or surplus route. Um, although I will say that in our discussions with reinsurers in the research for this, at least one said, no, they, they could probably make a plan. In fairness, that was the marketing guy. So the answer is probably always yes until it comes down to it. Um, I, I'm still skeptical whether it is, uh, access, we have access to bespoke uh, retrenchment, a big part of bespoke pandemic cover on its own. But it's not clear that pandemic cut bonds can be viable. It depends on the, the, the cost of capital of the, the insurer looking to buy the protection. It depends on the amount of capital and the size and the expenses all, all involved. So those are some of the areas that we're going to, to explore during this presentation. I'm now going to hand over to Marissa just to talk about the development of the industry, what's been happening around the world, some of the different types of insurance-linked securities, and then touch on the pretty important uh, mortality uh, modeling component of this. But it would be particularly helpful to have the slides for, for that part. Okay. So, David, when you said I have to cut down on slides, I didn't know that means no slides at all. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> they are busy uploading it, so we're hoping we'll get there soon. Okay, so So I think we've all at least heard of natural catastrophe bonds or non-life catastrophe bonds. These are the front runners in the insurance-linked securities market. Non-life insurers and reinsurers use these instruments to transfer major catastrophe risks such as hurricanes, earthquakes, or hailstorms from their portfolios to the financial market. As of October 2019, the ILS market has a size of about 40 billion US dollars. Natural catastrophe bonds make up 75% of this market. Natcat bonds have been around since the 1990s. It's actually Hurricane Andrew in 1992 that um, lead, led to the development of NatCat bonds. At this point, it was the largest catastrophe to hit the US, causing $25 billion of damage. 11 insurance companies went bankrupt. Many reinsurance companies left the reinsurance market. So the only solution was to turn to the financial market to manage catastrophe risk. Since the inception of the CATS bond market, more than 300 bonds have been issued. Only 10 of these have resulted in losses of principal to investors. Six were as a result of the insured event actually occurring, and four was as a result of a credit event in the underlying collateral. Next up is mortgage insurance-linked securities. Mortgage insurance protects the lender against the risk of default of the borrower or the inability of the borrower to make due on their obligation for any reason such as retrenchment, disability, or death. Mortgage ILS sees many mortgage insurance companies transferring their mortgage insurance portfolio risk from their from their portfolio to the financial market, it actually looks and behaves very similar to a NatCat bond. The difference though, other than the underlying risk that's different, 
is that mortgage ILSs are actually correlated to the broader financial market, given the exposure to default risk of the underlying mortgage insurance portfolios. What's interesting about mortgage insurance is that it's only recently been released in the ILS market, and it's already seeing rapid growth over the years. In July 2018, it made up 6% of the market, and now in October 2019, it's already making up 19% of the market. So I think this is growing quite fast and a space to look out for. Next up is VIF securitization. VIF, I think we all know what VIF is. Value and force, that's the future profits expected to emerge from a life insurance portfolio. VIF monetization allows the insurer to transfer or exchange some of these future profits for upfront capital. And a VIF securitization is a specific form of VIF monetization. VIF securitization is securities issued each with a right to a slice of future expected profits and it's sold to the financial market. VIF securitizations only make up 1.5% of the RLS market. And then finally, we have pandemic cat bonds, which David has introduced already to us. Pandemic cat bonds only make up 1% of the uh, RLS market. Swiss Re was the first company to issue a, a pandemic cat bond in 2003, and they still have an active cat bond, pandemic cat bond on the market. So now we consider the regulations involved for using a pandemic cat bond as a risk mitigation instrument when calculating SER. FSI 4, attachment 1, section B says that one can use a securitization in your SER formula if the counterparty to the transaction is an SPV approved by the PA. Um, provided that you allow for the funding level and collateral level of the SPV when calculating default risk of the SPV. If the counterparty to the transaction is a legal entity other than an SPV, one needs to demonstrate that the same requirements for an SPV is, is upholded before you can allow for this instrument in calculating your SCR. The PA has a form, Form IF031, which has specific requirements that you need to um, demonstrate to the PA and each individual insurance company who wants to use a pandemic cat bond in calculating the SCR needs to complete this form. The form asks for information such as where the SPV is domiciled, an opinion from your head of actuarial function on the appropriateness of the SPV arrangement, and an um, assessment of the financial soundness of the SPV. So the key takeaway here is that each individual insurance company needs to apply for approval from the regulator when, if they want to use a pandemic cat bond in calculating the SCR as a risk mitigation instrument. So unfortunately, we cannot pre-approve this SPV as a whole. The question being, is the regulatory environment conducive to the use of a pandemic cat bond? Well, technically, yes, but practically, we still anticipate a few challenges. 
let's have a look at the pandemic cat bond. Well, we can't have a look, but let's just go through it. Okay. So a mortality cat bond is issued with an attachment level. Hmm? Okay, let me see. So each mortality bond is issued with an attachment level and an exhaustion level. The attachment level is the point at which a part of this nominal amount of the bond becomes payable. That is, if extreme mortality is high enough such that the nominal uh, amount of the nominal bond becomes payable. An example of an attachment level could be 115% of base mortality. The exhaustion level is a point at which the full nominal amount of the bond becomes payable. An example of an exhaustion level could be 125% of the base mortality rates. The term of the bond is referred to as a risk period. This is usually or typically three to five years. The measurement period is a period over which mortality rates are smooth to avoid any random fluctuation from, to coming through. The combined mortality index is the measure used to see whether the exhaustion level or attachment level has been reached. The reference measurement period is the base mortality period. So, for example, if you issue a bond in 2020, then the reference measurement period could be 2018 and 2019. The combined mortality index for any specific measurement period within the risk period is calculated as a smooth mortality in that measurement period divided by the smooth mortality in the reference measurement period. Now we have a look at the pricing of a pandemic cat bond. So we have to model mortality and mortality will consist out of the three components, baseline mortality, pandemic component and the terrorism component. To model the baseline mortality, we have a look at historical data um, where we have credible information. So as a source for data, we can have a look at Stats SA's media population estimates in combination with their mortality and causes of death in South Africa paper that they release. So we plot these mortality rates against years and we, fit, we could fit a linear or log autoregressive model to these points depending on the fit. Then we assume the error term follows a normal distribution, and then you have your stochastic model for baseline mortality that you can use to project base mortality throughout the risk period of the bond. The pandemic components can be modeled using a frequency and severity approach. So to estimate the parameter for frequency, we can have a look at past pandemic experience, so say we, well, we can look at the National Institute of Co for Communicable Diseases to obtain data from the pandemic components. We can also have a look at international papers. So if we see, for example, 30 pandemic events that have occurred in the past 400 years, we can assume a 7.5% probability of a pandemic event occurring in any particular year. The severity distribution has two main components, or has two components. The main component 
and the extreme component. An exponential formula can be fitted to the main component, so to the observed pandemic events. And to fit an extreme, the extreme component, we can use a tangent function. The problem with terrorism, the terrorism model is that it's difficult to assess the probability of such an event because of the lack of data. So we have seen that for other countries, they usually use, or they refer to the annual report on world terrorism that's released by the US. A popular modeling approach is a multi-model or multi-level model or a trinomial lattice model, but I'm not gonna go into what that is. It's just important to note that you have to allow for the terrorism component, even if your policies do exclude terrorism, but the bond, the bond's trigger is, is uh, based on total mortality and therefore you have to allow for this component. So after we do a million simulations on each of these components, we combine the results and we get an, a mortality rate for each simulation, which is then used to calculate the combined mortality indices. These mortality indices are then used to calculate statistics such as the probability of reaching the exhaustion level or attachment level, the expected loss and average loss, which are all important factors into calculating the price of the bond. An important takeaway here is that publicly available data, independent of any of the stakeholders involved, needs to be used and available in order to calculate the price or the payout of the bond. Timeless, publicly available data is a key contributor to the viability of a pandemic cat bond. David is now going to take us through the stakeholders and costs involved of setting up a pandemic cat bond and we'll be making conclusions on the viability of the cat bond. Right, you can see why I really wanted this slide rather than to talk through it. Um, so in the middle we have the SPV, these are fairly often trusts. This is a standalone entity that does nothing other than worry about the flows on the cat bond. The buyers, insurers or reinsurers, will be the ones who are paying premiums for the protection um, each year or upfront, and uh, they will receive claims if the trigger is, is made. So although at the start I described them as borrowing, they don't receive the cash. All the cash, the collateral, sits within the SPV, and you could do various things with it from an investment perspective. Um, uh, Michael may want us to invest in equities, but we will stick to T-bills, something extremely low risk, because the insurers will need to look through that vehicle to the underlying instruments for, from an SCR perspective. <clears throat> the, the investors will contribute that initial capital, and they will then receive coupons each year provided no uh, pandemic, pandemic trigger events have, have happened. In terms of the, of the investors, uh, this could be, could be hedge funds, it could be a small allocation from an alternative uh, uh, part of a general portfolio. It may or may not fly, but I could well see pension funds say, well, actually, defined benefit for pension funds. Maybe we do have some sort of natural hedge here with the longevity of our retired members and the pandemic bond there. Some interesting areas. Um, but their preferences for a, hopefully, in a, a specific risk, a non-systematic risk, 
something that is not going to be correlated with the rest of the returns is pretty important to the overall viability. The, the costs come from all these activities over here. I'm not going to say it's the lawyers and the investment bankers and the credit rating agencies, except that it's the lawyers, the investment bankers, and the credit rating agencies that drive a lot of the fixed costs under these, these investments. The Prudential Authority is clearly a, an important stakeholder, not a primary cost driver, but as with everything, every application to the PA does involve a, a, a fee of, of some sort. Um, there will also be a tiny amounts of money on the actual consultants uh, to, to support that application. Uh, the, the, the administration of a cat bond SPV is way simpler than for a, a collateralized debt obligation. There'll be generally very few cash flows. We aren't expecting, in most years, this thing to, to pay out. There'll be cash flows up front, there'll be a coupon paid every year, and there'll probably, almost certainly, be a redemption of the, the capital back to the, the investor at the end of it. So there's not a lot of day-to-day -day processing and day-to-day -day transactions, so the administration costs should be pretty small. There is also the need for a well, there is also a need for governance structures and uh, board members or trustees, independent professional trustees, to make sure that the governance is, is in place. Part of the requirements that Marissa spoke about in terms of your application to the Prudential Authority is to demonstrate that the governance uh, is, is in place. Uh, so there will be some costs for, for, for governance, and, and these are fairly well established in the, the market for CDOs and other more debt-based instruments. The calculation agent is an important part of this. There needs to be an independent party who will do the calculations on an annual basis to work out whether or not a trigger event has happened. Have we reached the attachment point? Have we reached the exhaustion point? And although we have extreme confidence in SASA to put out the numbers, you could imagine scenarios where, for example, uh, in a very extreme pandemic, quite a few uh, institutions struggle, and maybe the, the data wouldn't necessarily be available. So you can go two routes there. You can either have an extra 400 pages in the SPV contract to deal with that eventuality, or you can have fewer pages and just depend on a sensible independent calculation agent to do that uh, as part. So those are the key stakeholders. We have glossed over some, and whether it is listed or not can have an impact. Uh, we also had some discussions around whether you would actually want to pay for a credit rating. One of the comments I read in passing is that no credit rating is better than a bad credit rating. And I'm not uh, convinced that the more South Africa and Africa-focused credit rating agencies have the experience of rating a pandemic cap bond. Let me say it another way. I'm convinced that they don't have that expertise. It's not what they've been doing. Um, and similarly, the large international rating agencies do sometimes provide ratings for these instruments, um, but they would need to look at this on a bespoke basis for South Africa. So to, to actually get to answer the question on are pandemic cap bonds uh, viable, we're going to summarize a little bit. The regulatory world does now allow for this. It is enabled. There are application forms and there are sections in the Insurance Act which permit this. So, so far, so good. But, yeah, the first one does still need to be approved. And as Marissa pointed out, this will need to be approved by each buyer rather than be approved for the vehicle as a whole. The data availability is there from what we have looked at. You know, the data availability it does exist. Uh, there are good reasons to do a parametric overall population bond rather than a more indemnity-based uh, bond for a specific insurer, but it does introduce basis risk. Is your insured population the same as the overall population? That is from a socioeconomic status, it is from a, an age perspective, and a whole range of other factors. So when the head of actuarial function is assessing whether or not this is an appropriate risk mitigation instrument, those are one of the things they would need to, to consider. 
But really the crux of it comes down to the costs and the supply and demand for, <coughs> for the instruments. So maybe let's take an extremely optimistic case to start with. Let's say the investor only is demanding a 2% premium over risk-free. And remember, the, the, the argument, the sales pitch, which I do believe in steadily, is that this should be almost pure alpha, there should be very little systemic risk involved in this. So maybe 200 basis points with a very low probability of getting paid out and very low expected claims um, is sufficient. Let's say the insurer uh, <clears throat> has a, an internal cost of capital, internal hurdle rate, which said they want to earn 8% over risk-free. Oh, and by the way, they've got a target capital ratio of 1.5 times. So now we're actually at a 12% cost compared to the reduction in SCR. The gap between a 12% uh, premium that could be paid and a 2% demand is, is massive, and we aren't even on, on this part of the graph. So you know, that, that's, that, that's massive. It's also a bit ludicrous, right? Uh, chances are the insurers are going to look more at a cost of capital at around 6% or even lower. Many people doing embedded value calculations will take a 3.5% premium only over risk-free and at a 3.5% premium over risk-free and allow for diversification of that pandemic risk component with mass slaps and market risk and some other items, maybe that reduces the amount of capital benefit you get you know, down to 40%. So suddenly it is 40% of 3.5% compared to a 2 or 3 or 4% required return from the investors. So this, this really is crucial to find uh, where that gap is. Now, there may be insurers for whom they just they don't want to accept this risk, and the SCR cover is under pressure, and it's a part of the risk appetite, and they are prepared to pay maybe more than an overall economic perspective. And it may well be that in times when spreads are quite low in the market, maybe 200 or 300 basis points is quite attractive, whereas in, in other times we could maybe more easily achieve 300, 400, 500 basis points for some instruments might be less attractive. So the, 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 the lines, I should mention, the red line, the bold line, is where we are going to effectively rent an existing structure. So the upfront costs are much lower, we are paying a more basis points type fee to get access to the structure, it would have the credibility of an uh, existing investment bank behind it, uh, and for all but the very largest uh, pools, that does seem to be the, the, the most attractive. The light green line is where we have uh, no credit rating, but we do have a standalone SPV and a standalone structure which is created from scratch, and these will be the costs for the first time round. The second and subsequent tranches issued could be cheaper. Uh, a bigger part of that is where there is no credit rating, and then the line at the top there, that is where we add on the additional expense, which could be anywhere between 500,000 and one and a half million rand potentially for that credit rating, depending on who you're going to get it and how much detail they're going to provide. Uh, so this looks fairly clear that we want to go for renting a, an existing structure and you know, we might need as little as sort of 60 or 70 million rand in the structure, which means that potentially some individual insurers would want to take out the pandemic bond on their own business on an indemnity basis, removing some of that basis risk, whereas other times we may be looking at more kind of two or 300 million rand, which incidentally is the typical range of viable size for CDOs. So that would definitely then require a grouping together of more insurers. We also thought about whether it would make more sense for uh, several insurers to club together to buy into this instrument, or just individual reinsurers, and then the reinsurers could use this protection to accept the pandemic risk directly from the insurers. Uh, I, I guess that's a question of how many different parties you want to get involved. But there is a challenge that if you are really concerned about the pandemic risk, 
And the reason the reinsurers are concerned about the pandemic risk is because it can be a global systemic issue. If you've inserted the reinsurer between you as a direct insurer and the capital market instrument, you're now exposed to the default of the reinsurer. So you need to be really satisfied that the reinsurer is actually going to be able to be there to, to, to stand by it in the event of a pandemic. So this isn't the, the clearest answer we could possibly have, but I think the answer to me is, are pandemic uh, cat bonds viable? Yes, but terms and conditions apply. Thank you. Thank you both. <clears throat> Any questions in the audience for David and Marissa? While you think, maybe I'll ask one. Um, <clears throat> so, slide says it's, it's a viable option, but do we have a sense in terms of the risks on the insurers in South Africa and reinsurance on their balance sheets at the moment in terms of the capital that they hold? So, to talk to the demand side of it. Yes, so we don't have a full spectrum view because unfortunately we can no longer hack the PA's websites to get all the information. But there are, I would guess that the top 10 life insurers in South Africa would have a sufficient pandemic cap bond, big bond pandemic exposures, yeah. that they would be interested in at least participating in one. The very largest insurers are generally very, very well capitalized. and. I'm still hoping that we could maybe do a, a toy launch or maybe a, a million rand just to see if it's actually viable. There'll be a lot more lessons than doing a more academic desktop research okay. and actually doing it. And I'd hope for be able to try out a million rand bond. We could go through the practicalities and learn a few things and the cost rate would be, would be fairly small. Um, but yeah, I don't think this is going to be the, 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 the new way that insurance risk is managed in South Africa. Um, interestingly enough, in our discussions with, with a range of players, the, the interest in VIF securitizations came, came on quite strongly. That is at least from the investment bank side, wanting to find instruments to want to sell. So that actually 20 years ago, VIF securitizations was the one that I thought would be more, more useful. Hmm. But we've already seen in South Africa, especially the last few months, uh, particularly insurers having some questions about the, the assumptions and the long term and will profits arise, what's gonna happen with the lapses. All those issues arise exactly the same with VIF securitization. So although there has been some interest there, I, I worry almost more about the potential uh, viability and, and sales message. Okay. Questions from Hello. the audience? This side. Wave. Okay. Um, so I have a question. It's a bit more on the technical side because uh, not that familiar with the cat bonds, and I'm hoping I'm not the only one. Um, so just a quick question. So the one um, thing that Marissa mentioned with the trigger levels was that, for instance, one trigger level could be 150% of base mortality. In those kinds of scenarios, or even with a VIF, VIF type of scenario, to what extent that is the basis that needs to be used defined in the contract that you'd be, that you'd be taking out? So obviously to avoid the reinsurance suddenly, or the, the company suddenly changing their assumptions and now we're past 115% of VIF, uh, of mortality. And then the other question that I just had is in the scenarios where your policies exclude terrorism, but um, that does actually trigger the bond. To what extent do we expect that companies will then take the money, free money for me, or do we expect that, they, that there would be some sort of share structure built in, or how, how would that money be used? 
Yo, I can, um, can you hear me? Okay, so I can just give a quick answer to that and then ask David to expand if he wants to. Firstly, on the terrorism component, so yes, unfortunately, that does add to the basis risk. Um, and then as far as the base mortality that you're referring to, um, so the base mortality and all the assumptions that goes into base mortality, um, for example, the weighting of age and gender, um, this all needs to be, this all is defined in the contract and needs to be kept consistent throughout when calculating your combined mortality indices at each measurement period. Yeah, that's exactly right. It's worth clarifying that the mortality, unfortunately, is not the mortality of the specific buyers or the insurers. So their basis, their assumptions, has nothing to do with this, really. And so there's that significant basis risk there. This is what the base mortality would be expected to be for the population as a whole to be consistent with, for example, the ESTATS SA, SA data. Uh, on the terrorism front, I guess I hope insurers wouldn't say, yay, terrorism, free money for me. Uh, but you know, there, there, there is basic risk there. Maybe I'm jinxing things, but in South Africa, at least, we've been very protected from terrorism risk. I don't think that is going to be a big component. And actually, when you look at it on a global scale, too, it's still a, a very newspaper headline-worthy and very small ultimate components of, of the mortality we expect. Thanks. Any other questions? Also questions for Michael, if you thought about any questions from him in the meantime. Thank you. A uh, question for Marissa and David. Uh, first of all, Marissa, well done for doing what you did without those slides. <laughs> Thank you. I just want to uh, touch on uh, very, very briefly on the, the basis risk. And part of the reason for an insurer wanting to get into the space is for capital reduction. So, to put you on the spot, David, what sort of allowance would you give, or would you consider giving, what sort of range of allowance would you consider for this sort of structure? That's the first question. And then the second question is, do you see any, of, um, any application for this within the rest of Africa as a way of getting more insurance capital in and, and removing some of the risk out of operation for the rest of Africa? So maybe the second question first, because it's maybe easier. Um, the, the World Bank uh, very, very recently actually came out uh, in conjunction with support from SIS3 with effectively a pandemic cat bond, not for insurers, but to support uh, uh, humanitarian type efforts across Africa. So there, there can definitely be uh, an angle there and the ability to almost sidestep the formal insurance sector in some ways can, can be useful. The problems that we have in South Africa around data and data from Statsys A and the timing and the availability and the detail of that data are not insignificant compared to what, what our, our colleagues in the US have who feel quite poor. And the danger, of course, is that it's only bigger in you know, other less uh, developed markets. So that would be kind of the, the primary constraint there. In terms of the first question and kind of what allowance you would take, I think you, it wouldn't be the same for every insurer, and you would need to look at what is the range of ages in the overall population, what is the range of ages in your insured population. If you are a small niche insurer insuring only professionals with a four-year business degree, 
you are, or four years ago, you're less likely to be a good match. If you've got a portfolio of three or four million lives covered under feudal policies, some of the base risk starts to, to decrease. So there would be an extra step to analyze, to understand how that, that worked. And that's why Marissa mentioned both the uh, mid-year population estimate report, which comes out from Statista, kind of six months or so after the end of the year, quite prompt, but not a lot of detail. But there are other reports which come up more slowly, which can provide more color in terms of cause of death and where it works. So you'd need to use those to do an assessment. Related to your question is also, well, that attachment point, that's 115% as an example, that can't be the one in 200 year points, otherwise you've got no protection up to one in 200 and have to hold all the capital. This protects you against under, say, seven and 10,000. So you need to be effective to have the exhaustion points be at the one in 200 year points, so you've been able to make sure that by the time that happened, you'll get full credit for it. And that then does increase the probability and decrease the sales pitch to the hedge fund investors that we're hoping would be interested in this. Thanks. I think we have time for another question. A quick, I had one for, for Michael. Go for it. I've, 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 I've got a, a relatively gentle one and a, and a slightly more hardball one. So we'll start with a gentle one. Uh, the, the argument that equities are good and that equities are good over the long term and it's slightly mitigated by having to hold capital for it. Doesn't that mean that life insurers shouldn't be touching equity and pension funds should be touching owning all the equity, not having to hold capital and also being long-term investors? Say so the last part again. So the pension funds. Yeah, why shouldn't it be that pension funds would be the ideal home for long-term equity since they don't have to hold capital against it? So, that's I, the easy yeah, yeah. So, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I think that's true, David. Um, the you know pension funds do hold a fair portion of equity, and I think it does make sense for them to hold it. Um, I, I think it just makes sense for life insurers to potentially hold it as well, rather than only just pension funds that hold that kind of view, because life insurers can also take a, a longer term view. Okay, then the slightly <coughs> more difficult question. There you go. <laughs> um, and this, this maybe reflects my sort of 15 year uh, infatuation with market consistent and better value. But you said something along the lines of that well, we shouldn't be using a PE multiple um, to value uh, investment assets, and I agree. But shouldn't, shouldn't we be taking the value of all our assets in our insurance company at their market value? And isn't the value of our obligations to insurers, isn't that liability measure independent of how we've invested to back it? So then why does changing the risk of the assets, which isn't going to change the market value of the assets, why should that change the value of the firm if we haven't changed the value of the assets or the liabilities? So I think that that's a very good question. Um, and I think it comes down to how you're valuing the firm, right? And in some sense, we're valuing a strategy that the firm is implementing rather than just the assets of the firm. So if, if we look at a firm that isn't, you know, it's just 100% in cash, they're going to be less valuable, even though that their net asset value today um, is, is the same as somebody who may be investing in equity. And that is because the firm has the ability to take the long-term view. What we've done here in, 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 in this paper is to take into account the risk that holding the equity um, gives to you. And because we have the diversification benefit within the company, we can actually reduce the risk and take a longer-term view. 
So that strategy in itself increases the value of the company, even though the market value of the assets that you hold is the same. Um, it's similar to selling a very profitable insurance product. You know, you sell it, um, you still haven't seen the results yet, but you have added value. <laughs> that prompted another question in the audience. Great presentations, guys, and uh, Marissa. So, very quick question, specifically on the last point, not the last point, rather, I'm not going to touch that, but on the equity point. Um, <laughs> um, I'm very interested to understand why in South Africa, kind of, especially on the pension side, we underinvest in private equity. And I think the regulation allows for 10% allocated there, but the average is at sitting about 25 to 5%. Um, quite keen to get your views as consulting actuaries. So, sorry, just. So you're asking why pension funds? <laughs> so in your entire kind of thesis or kind of, your, your, kind of your, your argument that pushing towards risky assets is good for a life insurance company, right? I mean, I think it holds, holds true. I mean, we see consolidators around the world boost their ROEs by 50 to 300% by following similar trends or similar strategies. I'm curious as to why in South Africa, Kind of, we, we very kind of, the guys invest in kind of equity investment or in kind of listed equity investments, but they're very light on private equity type vehicles. I know kind of liquidity is obviously a very big consideration, but as consulting actuaries, is it because, I mean, the consulting actuaries that allow these pension funds to invest in the end of the day are the gatekeepers, or is it, is it actually a fact that people want to avoid that type of investment? So, yes, I think we do invest quite lightly in private equity, and it might be also a bit of a seasonal thing um, as people become more nervous around you know, how the economy is going to perform. But I do think that there's a difference between pension funds and life insurers in the sense that a life insurer has capital, so they can weather the storm. Um, pension funds are maybe in not such a good position to be able to weather the storm. Even though they can take a long-term view, they have less levers to be able to manage long-term risks. And this may be one of the reasons why it's more attractive to do it in a place that has capital um, and other levers than to do it outside of that, which would be more a vanilla pension fund. So the good news is I can't take any blame because I don't advise pension funds on what to invest in. The, the, the bad news is that um, I think the merits of private equity are very easily oversold. And you know, there was a, a period of history where the analysis showed very high returns and very low volatility. But more and more, as, as the, the, the private equity funds get bigger, but also as there's a recognition that uh, we need to allow in the pricing not to have stale prices and not have historical uh, costs in there decreasing the volatility, that the returns tend to not look as good and the correlations start getting up to 70, 80, 90%. Now, it does depend on strategy, it does depend on fund and so on, but anyway, that's, I guess, my, my two cents, not the answer you're looking for, and not my fault, nobody's doing it, but I think you can easily oversell the, the virtues of private equity. Thank you. Any last questions? We have time for one more if there is another question. And that, ah. Oh. Thank you. Lunch postponed for a few minutes. 
So, sorry about that. No, no. Uh, just, just, just a question on the natural catastrophe bonds. Um, if I heard correctly, they, uh, they've been around since 1990, uh, but the total market cap is only about 40 billion US dollars. Now, when we look at viability for bonds in South Africa, um, aren't there good learnings from why that market hasn't really taken off more? Um, I'm not sure if, if David, if, if you have, or Marissa, if you have the statistics, but um, I'd be interested to know the size of the cat bond market compared to more, let's say, traditional reinsurance and you know, the, the retrocession markets, Lloyd's, Lloyd's of London, et cetera. Isn't there learnings from why that market hasn't taken off that we can apply in, in uh, locally? I don't know the exact stats, but, but basically, yes, you're right. And I mean, the, the size of the Nats cat market is very big compared to almost all other sort of cat bonds. Marissa spoke about the, the size of the uh, mortality cat bonds being was 1% of the total or something. So to my mind, the lessons are less about why the Nats cat market is small, because the Nats cat market is relatively big. And it is still primarily uh, the US with the uh, extent of natural catastrophes that they have. Uh, I think it's probably fair to say that even Swiss Re, with their fairly long-lived mortality cat bond program, are focused on establishing a market and establishing a track record such that if they ever really needed that capacity, they would have a track record of ha having established it rather than that is a desperate burning desire for it now. Um, by and large, there is enough capacity in general. So you know, there's not much of a sales pitch for pandemic cat bonds in South Africa. Uh, the, 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 the origins for me was like, well, I think some form of insurance-linked security would be really interesting to do to work out the, the wrinkles. And I have heard from clients the last few years that on that pandemic cat piece, they are looking for a transfer and aren't getting it from, from reinsurers. The, the points we spoke about, the data concerns and the basis risk and the size and the cost involved are all very valid reasons why it is, you know, uh, terms and conditions apply rather than overwhelming yes. Uh, yeah, I think that's, that's my answer. Is there anything to add? Thank you. Um, thanks, everyone. Thank you, Michael, Marissa, and David. I know it takes a lot of effort to prepare for these presentations and a lot of courage to get up and present in front of, of a crowd like this. So thank you for that. We, we really appreciate it. Just want to give them a round of applause for that.